Father, it is significant that we call you Father. Many of us in this room are fathers. It is not easy being a father. Those of us who are fathers are acutely aware of our shortcomings. We wish we were better at it than we are. There are some things that are in our memory from years past where we did something as a father and we still think about it and we still regret it. And as best we can, we go back and make amends and confess shortcomings and ask forgiveness. Uh, those of us who are fathers, it doesn't matter how long we've been fathers. It doesn't matter how long we've been grandfathers. We're still learning. So we keep looking to you. Thank you that you've never made a mistake with us. Thank you that you have never uh, used your power in a wrong way with us. Thank you that you have power over your power. Thank you that you train us. Thank you that you instruct us, that you discipline us. Thank you that you made it possible at a tremendous cost by sending your son to die for us. You made it possible for us to be in relationship with you. We take our cues from you as we function as fathers. And we're going to talk this evening about our fathering and how significant it is. This uh, could easily bring a lot of guilt. But that's not really not the purpose. I mean, some of us perhaps, Lord, we've all been guilty. We've all fallen short. But protect us tonight from guilt feelings over sins we have confessed and we have been forgiven for. But at the same time, give us a teachable heart and a teachable spirit so that we can continue to grow and continue to become more discerning and um, we continue to need wisdom as fathers. But how critical a role it is in a time where there are fewer and fewer fathers who are modeling the traits that you call for in Scripture. We would like to be among those men who are numbered in that group so continue to teach us, instruct us, give us teachable hearts tonight. We bring our families to you. We pray for your favor. We pray for your help in dealing with hard issues that must be addressed. We cannot do this on our own, and we thank you that we don't have to do it on our own. Those of us who are fathers and grandfathers, we have a safety net. And it's our Heavenly Father. 
Help us to be mindful of these things tonight as we study. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So if you have been with us, you know we're working our way through, and I have to say, every time I do this, it's kind of weird to teach your own book. Uh, That's why I've never done it. I don't think I've ever done it, but I'm doing it right now. I, I did this book, Point Man, 25 years ago. It's really what got me into men's ministry. And for as many years as we've been doing this study, I have never, we at, at times have hit on some principles. But uh, Point Man was a book I did for guys on how to be a spiritual leader of your family. And I'll repeat myself again. If your father was a spiritual leader, showed you how to do it, Uh, you know how to do it because you've seen it modeled. But if your dad wasn't a man who led in the home spiritually, if he left that to your mother or if it just wasn't done in your family, and now you've come to know Christ, well, how would you know what to do? If you've never seen seen spiritual leadership, how would you know how to do it? Uh, You can't be too hard on your father if he didn't show you because his father didn't show him, his father didn't show him. This is a generational thing. But when a man comes to Christ and begins to pursue the Lord, and it's more than knowing about Christ, it's knowing Christ, and you trust in Christ alone as your Savior, and you forget trying to be the, do the good work stuff, and you realize this is all by grace, Ephesians 2.8, and you believe 1 Corinthians 15, what Paul said was the most important thing in the world, we delivered you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins that he was buried, that he rose on the third day, that he appeared to Cephas, that he appeared to uh, the apostles, that he appeared to over 500 at one time. This is the gospel. If you're following Christ, now you're in the process of growth. You've been born again. Now we're going from immaturity to maturity, and we're called to lead. If you're a husband, if you're a father, and I'd like to ask this question again. How many of you guys, how many of you guys are married? Can I see your hands? Okay, and how many of you guys are fathers? And how many grandfathers? Okay, good. And how many of you are sons? All right, good. We didn't want to leave anybody out. We didn't want to hurt anybody's feelings. So everybody's included, all right? Um, So we've been working our way through the book and these principles on spiritual leadership. I did a chapter. And I got a little heat for the chapter. And I had some people, who evangelical Christians, who when, I, uh, when they saw the book and they looked at it, and they, they were kind of surprised by a chapter I did called How to Raise Masculine Sons and Feminine Daughters. And, and it really, I mean, it just kind of threw them a little bit. Well, why would you? What's that about? Well, it's about... Uh, raising masculine sons and feminine daughters. And they didn't see why that was, why would you even go into that? Why is that an issue? And my answer was, well, because it seems to me it's an issue with the Lord. Because it's a big issue in our culture. And, the, and this is, I mean, I wrote this in 88 and 89. And... Uh, 
you know, most people were fine with it. But I had some friends, and they, they thought that was a little strange. And they thought I'd gone off the deep end a little bit. I said, you're making a big deal. You're talking about sex roles. I said, yeah. That's kind of sexist, isn't it? I don't think so. I think they're in the Scripture, and I think it's pretty clear in the Scripture. Uh, now, we're both made in the image of God. Genesis makes that clear. Male and female, he created them. God said, let us make man in our own image. Male and female, he created them. So we are made in the image of God, male and female, but we are different. Now, our culture comes along, and our culture is all about equality. Um, feminism is all about equality. And fe feminism hit, hit big time in the late 60s in our culture. And it is, it is pervasive now, and it has proliferated everywhere. And it has, quite frankly, dominated the minds of even Christian people. But I would submit to you that so much of feminism as it is taught in the culture is contrary to the scriptures. Uh, you say, oh, but feminism is just talking about equality. No, it's really not. Feminism is talking about sameness. If, if you really read the literature of, of feminism in our culture, how they interpret equality is that men and women are the same, and men and women are not the same. God acknowledged the differences between the sexes. Uh, I believe, as I read Scripture, God wants men to be masculine. Now, we, now, you gotta ask, now you gotta answer a question. Well, what is that? And before, in past generations, you never had to answer that question. That's okay, we need to answer it now. So we're gonna answer it tonight. What is that? What does that mean? And then, so feminine, yeah, and God wants women to be feminine. What we tend to do, the world system is in rebellion to God. And one of the things I was noticing back in the 80s was that there was this very edifying new television network called MTV. It's kind of a joke. And I noticed with MTV that they were blurring on purpose the distinction between male and female. And you got all these kids watching this stuff. So I, thought, I felt it was important 25 years ago to address that, and I had people questioning me. I think the need is even more acute now. Because I would say this to you. When it comes to gender in our culture, we have lost our compass. We have lost the GPS. With GPS, they can track you in a broom closet looking for Drano or whatever you're doing in the broom closet. They know what you're doing. They know what your heart rate is. They know everything about you. But when it comes to male and female, when it comes to sex roles, and once again, when, when, when a culture, the further you get away from the Lord, the further you get away from the Scriptures, where did male and female come from? He created us. Where did marriage come from? He created it. Where did the family come from? He created it. He ordained it. 
and he has given principles in his word. But we have gone so far away from the principles of this book. It is grievous. People get broken. People's, the further you get away from this book, people suffer. People go through tremendous anguish and pain and confusion, even to the point where they take their own lives. This is a grievous thing. Several weeks ago, Facebook. You know, normally you fill out some kind of application, and on there, I was at the doctor's office yesterday. Hadn't been to this doctor before. And, you know, the standard questions. And one of the questions was gender. Now, this guy was old school because he only had two options. <laughs> he had male and he had female. That was it. He needs to get with it. Facebook, as of two or three weeks ago, you have 51 different options. That is tragic. I mean, that is tragic. Owen Strakehan is a professor at Southern Seminary in Louisville. He is the um, president of the Council of Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. You say, what is that? It's an organization that I used to be on the board of that helps uh, a biblical view of men and women in Scripture continue to be taught in evangelical Christianity because there is such a surge in evangelical Christianity away from what the Scripture teach about, teaches about biblical manhood and womanhood. So in The Federalist, Strachan has an article, and the article is entitled, Children's Restrooms Are the Next Front Line in the Gender Wars. I'm going to read, I want to read one page and one paragraph. If, if you think this isn't important. The gender revolution will not be televised. Strakehand says. Why? Because it is taking place in your local public bathroom. It's true, gender upheaval coming soon to a commode near you. In Maine, the state Supreme Judicial Court found in a recent court case that a young woman described as transgender could enter male or female restrooms. In California, the state legislature passed a bill that gives students who identify as transgender the right to participate in sex-segregated programs, activities, and facilities including the use of restrooms of both sexes, as if using public restrooms wasn't frightful enough. The effect of these watershed developments in the water closet is hard to miss. Water closet is bathroom if you're not from England. Depending on their gender expression, boys and girls, now get this, boys and girls may now enter restrooms of the opposite sex as they see fit. These bizarre developments sound more like a dreaded group project in Gender Studies 101 than an act of the state. Gender revisionists have made a fuss about the fluidity of gender for years now, but their views have largely failed to penetrate mainstream American public life. All of this is now changing. In our enlightened new world, boys can shower with girls. They can enter a locker room of the opposite sex when they wish, and provided they profess to be transgender, 
No one can stop them. This is true not only of teenagers, but kindergartners. The sexually curious no longer have a barrier to their exploration. Teachers cannot step in. Administrators cannot intervene in public schools. Per the will of the Maine Judiciary and the California Legislature, children no longer enjoy the protection our society has assumed in the matter of course. Gender confusion is real. Last paragraph. If you've been raised in a sexually compromised home or if your father has been absent, you may well puzzle over what it means to be a man and a woman. In a country whose culture of marriage is collapsing, an increasing number of boys and girls will lack such parental wisdom. They'll flirt with being transgender and have little compass for moral behavior as a boy or girl. It is tragic their, legislatures, their legislators and judges, leaders appointed to protect children, are abetting and encouraging the confusion. I'll stop there. Can you imagine such a thing? I have a friend named Walt Heyer. I've mentioned him before. I had met him through my brother, Jeff. Jeff pastored in California. And when he came to Jeff's church, his name was Laura. And he had been raised as a man. He was a male by birth, but was uh, very confused. By his own testimony, his grandmother uh, made dresses for him apparently really wanted to have a girl and um, encouraged him along these lines. And then later he was, by his own testimony, sexually abused by a grandfather. And it really did a number on him internally. And all throughout his life he had an internal, he had an internal struggle going on. And what happened was, at a certain point, a very, very successful guy in the business world, smart guy, intelligent guy, very capable man. But the, um, the struggle within him got to such a point, he went ahead and had the surgery done um, and then was disappointed. And what he thought would set him free did not. Um, heard the gospel went to a church, pastor asked him to leave, made his way to my brother's church. Uh, I, I guess was there a little bit of time, he wanted to see if it was safe, and then went in and talked with Jeff. And uh, as I recall, Jeff said, well, uh, our job is to love you. Only God can change people, any of us. And through a process, he went back to becoming a male. He is remarried. He has a minister, ministry to transgender folks. And uh, I was privileged to write an endorsement of his book many years ago. And, and I remember he, he called me. He was kind of discouraged because there wasn't much of an interest in his book. It, there weren't many sales. And I said, Walt, don't, don't look at the sales of a book. Don't ever look at your sales, man. You just write what the Lord puts out there, and he'll get it to the right folks. Uh, you just do your work and leave it to the Lord. Well, now, he can't keep up with everything. One of the things he's trying to do in his ministry is to keep people, almost on a daily basis, who write to him and contact him from 
taking their own lives because they live in such pain. I won't read the quote here, but he just included an email from a gentleman that, who has been struggling with this for years and years and years and years. And, and he basically said to Walt, he said, it's all I can do. Every day, the issue is, can I go another day without buying a gun and killing myself? Now, that just grieves my heart, and it grieves yours. But you know, Jesus Christ can heal broken people. That's the gospel. We're all broken. We're all in need. We all have our issues. We all have our stuff. What's happened is, is we're in a, we're in a, a, a point in our culture where we're seeing, we're, we're seeing the unspeakable. And, and we're seeing epidemic of the, of the unspeakable. And, and when you talk about these things, you're talking about people who have been hurt and wounded and broken and who can be healed, but only through Christ. Only through Christ. So I would say this to you, and the reason I went into all this, if you think the issue of raising masculine sons and feminine daughters is not important, I would submit to you now, you're thinking it's a little more important than when you walked in here. Uh, I would also say this. It's just not an issue for fathers, it's an issue for grandfathers. You see? Because fathers and grandfathers, as we saw last week, we read Deuteronomy chapter 6. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, you have a responsibility uh, given to men so that you and your son and your, what? Grandson might fear the Lord. Okay? Grandfathers have a remarkable entry point with grandkids. All right, enough on that. Now, um, when I say we're so far away from the Scripture, I'm, I'm going to get to Ephesians and Colossians in a moment. But I want to quote from Andreas Kostenberger, his book, and I've quoted from this over the last year quite a bit, God, Marriage, and Family. And he has a section called The Roles and Responsibilities of Fathers. I want to read this to you. Because, you see, being a father is, biblically, is a remarkable responsibility. He quotes Daniel Block, who has written extensively on ancient Near East cultures. And just stay with me, and let's, let's just work through this, and I think you'll see how significant your role is as a father, your role is as a grandfather. Our, our culture minimizes the roles of father. God maximizes the role of father. So, Kostenberger says this on the roles and responsibilities of fathers. As Daniel Block notes, like most ancient Near Eastern cultures, Israelite families were patrilineal. That means official descent was traced through the father's line. They were patrilocal. Married women became part of their husband's household, and they were patriarchal. The father was in charge of the household. This is how it was in the Scripture, in the Old Testament. While most identify the ancient Israelite family structure by the term patriarchy, which means rule of the father, Bloch contends that the expression patricentrism, centered around the father, may be better suited for this type of arrangement since, first, feminism has permanently discredited, discredited patriarchy even in its non-abusive form by giving it a, ne a negative connotation. Now, that's where we are. 
even a positive role model as a father, it, it's hard to say anything good about it, is how I interpret that. Second, patrocentrism. Secondly, patrocentrism better reflects. I was going to an eye doctor yesterday, <laughs> by the way, in case you were wondering. Let me just use my braille here. This will help me, because I'm, I'm going bad here quick. Second, patrocentrism, patrocentrism better reflects the normative biblical disposition towards the role of a head of household in Israel. Okay, like the spokes of a wheel, family life radiated outward from the father as its center. Very true. The community was built around the father and bore his stamp in every respect. Also third, while the father indisputably ruled his household, the Old Testament rarely focuses on his power. In fact, Genesis 3.16 speaks of a subversion of the man's proper exercise of authority. So normally it doesn't speak of his power, but rather the functioning at, or, or, or his use of power as a dictator. But in healthy households, the father and husband usually inspired the trust and security of its members. Read Job 29. The, the father was to live in such a way that his family trusted him and they knew that he was concerned about their security and their well-being. They understood that. Hence, it was not primarily the power and privileges associated with the father's position, but rather the responsibilities associated with his headship that were emphasized. Now catch this. He keeps mentioning this, this scholar, Daniel Block. Block lists the following nine primary responsibilities of the father in ancient Israel. I'm just going to read them quickly. Number one, personally modeling strict personal fidelity to Yahweh. You're a follower of the Lord God. Secondly, leading the family in the national festivals, nurturing the memory of Israel's salvation. Three, instructing the family in the traditions of the Exodus and the Scriptures. Four, managing the land in accordance with the law, Leviticus 25. Uh, providing for the family's basic need for food, shelter, clothing, and rest. Defending the household against outside threats, Judges 18, 21 to 25. Serving as elder and representing the household in the official assembly of the citizens, Ruth chapter 4. Maintaining family members' well-being and the harmonious operation of the, ham of the family unit. And lastly, implementing decisions made at the clan or tribal level. See, in our culture, when most guys think about a father, they think of one out of the nine which is providing for the family's basic need of food, clothing, and shelter. And we're getting to a point where a lot of guys are just content to leave that to a woman or the government. Okay. Uh, this father stuff's important. Would you not agree? Amen. Apart from their responsibilities toward their wife, fathers or their wives back then, because at certain points they had more than one wife, Fathers also, although that was never God's ideal and God's plan, fathers also had obligations towards their children. As Block points out, lists such as the following demonstrate the inadequacy of, laboring, of labeling the father's role in ancient Israel patriarchal with the predominant or even exclusive emphasis being placed on his exercise or even abusive exercise of authority. Fathers' responsibilities towards their son included the following, naming their children together with their wives, consecrating their firstborn sons to God, circumcising their son on the eighth day, 
delighting in, having compassion on, and loving their sons, nurturing their sons' spiritual development, modeling before them their own deep personal commitment to God and the Scriptures, instructing them in the Scriptures and the traditions of salvation and covenant, and giving public witness to their spiritual commitment, guarding their own ethical conduct so as not to involve their sons in any sin, Exodus 20, verse 5. Instructing their sons in the way of wisdom, developing their character and skills for life and vocation, and teaching them to follow in their father's steps, Proverbs 1 through 9. Disciplining their sons when they erred and presenting them to the communal leaders for discipline when the son refused to be corrected by the father. Judicially managing their household affairs, especially with regard to inheritance, so as to ensure a smooth transition to the subsequent generation. There's nothing in here about the abuse of authority. This is stewardship. This is taking care. Uh, he's not done yet. Arranging for their son's marriage to suitable wives. I think we may get back to this. Just a little comment. Just kidding. Sort of. Pronouncing blessings on their sons prior to their death. Isn't it interesting how many men, I've met men who are 50, 60, 70 years old that are still trying to earn the approval of their fathers and their fathers have been dead 30 years because they never were blessed by their fathers. What about daughters? The list of fathers' obligations towards their daughters is shorter given the generally male-oriented perspective of the Old Testament. He is to protect his daughters from male predators so that they would marry as virgins, thus bringing honor to his name and purity to their husband, Exodus chapter 22, Deuteronomy 22. He was to arrange for his daughter's marriage by finding a suitable husband and making proper arrangements. He was to ensure a measure of security for his daughters by providing a dowry, Genesis 29. He was to protect his daughters from rash vows, Numbers chapter 30. He was to provide security for his daughters in case their marriage failed, and perhaps also he was to instruct his daughters in the Scriptures. Now that's what you call a job description. And today we minimize the role of fathers. But I'll tell you what, that's something that to me is worth having. Would that not make a difference in the life of a son or a daughter to have a father like that? Absolutely it would. Uh, if you have your Bible, turn with me to, we're going to look at two verses. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And then flip over two books to the right to Colossians chapter 3, verse 21. Fathers, do not exasperate your children so that they will not, watch this, lose heart lose heart. Um, now, I want to say again, it's a little weird. I was at Corner Bakery this morning, and uh, I'd meant to go to Chili's, but my eyes were bad. <laughs> but I was at Corner Bakery having some breakfast, and I had my Bible, and I had this out, and I was looking over some stuff, and I had my book, Point Man. And the manager, who knows me, came by and he stopped and he goes, oh, you're reading your own book. And I said, yeah. It's kind of weird, isn't it? 
and I had to explain to him what I was doing. So yeah, I was reading my book. Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna quote some stuff out of here tonight, which I still am a little strange. I feel strange in doing, but I'm gonna do it. Um, that Ephesians six four passage. Let me read a paragraph to you. It's Ephesians six four. And once again, what does that say? And fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. All right, now, Ephesians 6, 4 is a compass. Earlier, I said when it comes to gender, when it comes to male, female, when you've got 51 different gender options, you've got no compass. Now, I wrote this 25 years ago. Ephesians 6, 4 is a compass that enables a father to give his children correct guidance towards finding their sexual identities. A compass is invaluable in the wilderness because it gives accurate direction. If someone is confused and unsure about north, south, east, or west, a compass will give correct information. According to Webster, a compass is a device for determining direction by means of a magnetic needle, turning freely on a pivot, and pointing to the magnetic north. A compass helps us get out of confusing circumstances and move toward our desired destination. That describes exactly the role of a father. And a number of years ago, I found a quote in a book called Child Development by Sue Ann Robinson Ambrome, and she wrote this, in gender role development, the evidence points to fathers as having the more important influence. Not only in fostering a male self-concept in boys, but femininity in girls. Mothers do contribute to their daughter's adoption of the feminine role, but they have little influence on the masculinity of their sons. So boys and girls, the, 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 the magnetic north, the north store, is the father. Little boys emulate their fathers. You've seen that. You did it with your dad. Uh, it's just how it works. But little girls play off their dads. They intuitively know they're different. And by the way, they are different. There are differences between men and women. There are, boys, there are differences between little boys and little girls. There just are. Little boys, uh, males, have a thousand times more testosterone than females. That's a difference. And it accounts for some behavioral differences. This is why little boys will climb a 40-foot oak tree and jump. <laughs> because they're crazy. They're little boys. Little girls tend not to do that. Why? Because there are some physiological differences, both equal in the eyes of God. doesn't mean same. It means different. You see? Uh, the plumbing's different. Women, studies have shown, uh, men have X amount of words they can speak in a day. They usually run out about 8.30 in the morning. <laughs> Our wives have a much, 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 much larger quotient of words. Do they not? I mean, there are all kinds of books written about this stuff. But interesting, the father is really key in developing sexual identity. Now, now let me say this. You can be the best dad in the world. You can be right on target biblically. And I'm going to tell you something. In this culture, you're up against it. Because as good a dad as you are, modeling the scriptures, loving Christ, loving your wife, all that, okay? 
you've got a world system that is against you. You've got an enemy. You go back to one of the first things I said in Point Man. You've got an enemy. When you love Christ and follow Christ, you've got an enemy. And what he wants to do is he wants to neutralize you. He wants to neutralize your family in terms of being a witness for Christ. So he's going to try and do two things. He's going to try and alienate and sever the relationship that you enjoy with your wife. He's also going to try and alienate and sever the relationship that you enjoy with your kids. And he will do any and every, he'll use anything he can do to accomplish these things. It used to be, it, it used to be, I, I, I remember Martin Lloyd-Jones talking about this in one of his books. Uh, he was born in the late 1800s, as I recall. He, he was born right, yeah, 1899, I think he was born, the great preacher in London. And I remember him saying, you know, it used to be that a man could control what came into his house and what came into his family. But Martin Lloyd-Jones saw all of that change with the advent of radio, with the advent of movies, with the advent of television. And where are we today? My gosh. My gosh. It used to be, how many years ago, you had to, if you wanted porn, you had to go to the bad side of town. And a lot of guys didn't go because they knew it, somebody would know you went. You see? Um, now, I mean, you're checking email and they're sending it to you and you didn't ask for it. And your kids are getting it. And they're getting mixed messages and messages that confuse them and harm them and hurt them. I'm saying, guys, and, and I have talked to guys whose hearts have been broken because they feel like failures because they've had kids get into stuff and they just can't believe their kids are in this. But, my gosh, except for the grace of God, it could happen to anybody, any guy in this room. I don't care how good of a dad you are. Because we're in spiritual battle and we're in spiritual warfare. Is that not true? Yes, it is. Um, I, I, I believe there are four, as there are four, if you will, key points in a compass, there are four key points in fathering that we contribute to our children in helping them in terms of living with a healthy sexual understanding of who they are and I think it comes out of Ephesians 6, 4, uh, and Colossians 3, verse 21. We didn't read Colossians 3. Well, we did. Let's read it again. Which says, children, be obedient. No, that's 20. Fathers, do not exasperate your children so that they will not lose heart. Now, I, I'm going to tell you something. I love the Scriptures. I'm fascinated by the Scriptures. There is so much truth. There is not a wasted word in the Word of God. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. The idea behind the word exasperate is do not embitter. This complements Ephesians 6, 4, which we read earlier, which says don't provoke them to anger. Uh, the meaning in 6, 4 is 
to anger, to make them angry, or to bring one along to a deep-seated anger. Uh, when kids get really, really angry, let me ask you, when do you get really, really angry? Well, when you've been systematically mistreated. Uh, which leads me to the first moral landmark. I'm going to give you four moral landmarks of fathers out of these two verses. Moral landmark number one. Fathers should raise their children in fairness. In fairness. Now, <laughs> this is loaded because how many times will you hear your kids say, Daddy, that's not fair? In our culture, everything's got to be fair. Okay. Understand what I mean when I'm talking about this. There is a sense of justice. There is a sense of fairness. There is a sense of um, judicious behavior on the part of a father who has the well-being of his child in mind. That's different from what kids are thinking. But a father is a mature man, and now, let, let me give you an example. William Hendrickson was a great New Testament scholar. Um, he says there are six ways a father can embitter his children. And, and see, this will explain to you what I meant by fairness. Uh, another commentator on this passage said this, a child frequently irritated by over-severity or injustice to which nevertheless it must submit acquires a spirit of sullen resignation leading to despair. William Hendrickson says there's at least six ways a father can embitter his children. Number one, by, over, by overprotection. Overprotection. Um, this is why little boys need dads. Uh, moms always want to protect their kids. The other night, I was tired, I was bored, I was exhausted. Uh, I, I just wanted to sit down and um, waste time in front of the television. And so I watched this show of these people, this couple, looking at three houses and trying to decide which one to buy. <laughs> and I immediately got hooked, and I've watched it every night since. <laughs> I'm kidding you. HGTV? Anyway. But you know what was interesting? It was really interesting to watch a husband and wife because they'd walk in and he'd like to have, oh, that's neat and that's neat. And then she'd say, yeah, but I think it's dangerous. It's, and, he, and he'd go. Uh, and then they went to the second house. Oh, I love the kitchen. I love the master bathroom. And then they went out on the bathroom. Oh, that looks dangerous to me. And then they went out to the third house and in the patio they had some gravel. Ooh, that looks really dangerous to me. That gravel, that gravel, they'll do a number on you, man. <laughs> and he just, and I was just watching this, and I thought, because she's a mom. But you see, this is why boys need dads, because boys are designed by God to be aggressive and to take risk. But they need fathers to encourage them and to teach them how to take good risk without putting in a fear of their hearts of ever taking risk. And I think I said last week that husbands are to love their wives, Ephesians 5, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. If you put a fear in little boys of getting hurt, it's going to be hard for them 
to love their wives as Christ loved the church because your job as a husband is to get hurt for your wife. Your job is to take the blows. And you've got to use sense, and boys have got to be taught sense. But you can overprotect a little boy, and you can embitter a child by overprotection. Number two, uh, you can embitter by favoritism. If you buy one kid a coat of many colors, you're asking for trouble. Number three, and, and you know, we tend to all have in our heart of hearts, it, it's, it's interesting because maybe the one who's most like you or the one who likes what you, see, that's your favorite. You can't have a favorite. You cannot have a favorite. And if you have a favorite, you better keep it on, a lid on it because all three of those are your kids, Right? Would not a kid get embittered if he thinks you love his brother or sister more than you love them? This is just real life, but you've got to fight it. So favoritism can embitter a child. Three, discouragement can embitter a child. Habitual messages. Some of you guys heard these growing up. You'll never amount to anything, and you still hear it in your head. Number four, by forgetting that the child is growing up has a right to have idea of his, of his own and doesn't need to be an exact copy of you. Your, your child is not you. And, and sometimes a child will have different interests. You love sports, your, your, your child doesn't love sports. So what are you going to have to do? You're going to have to really work hard to connect because if they feel that you're not... Anyway, you get it. They're not you. I, I have a friend and... He went into a certain profession because his mother wanted him to go into that profession. Now, he just happened to have the skill set, and he happens to be pretty good at it. But she felt like that would be a very secure profession for him. And he happened, again, to have the, the ability to go in and had some interest and uh, is relatively happy. But I also have met guys that did what parents wanted them to do without taking into consideration the gifts that God had given them, it's their life. Encourage them, help them find their gifts, but let them be what God has intended them to be. A child who is forced into something is going to be embittered. Uh, the other thing uh, that, will, that will embitter a child is neglect. Some of you guys were neglected. That's hard to deal with. That hurts. You say, what's neglect? It's not time with them. Most of us in this room have given our kids too much. Most of us have. I've done it. Our kids don't need more stuff. Our kids need us. Grandkids need you. Your kids need you. Yeah, well, I'm really working on my golf game. Who cares? I'm just trying to knock another stroke off. If you can do that, and at the same time do this, great. Because we all need a little downtime. I'm not disparaging that. You hear what I'm saying. But if that is your goal in life, and you're out there, and you've got kids, and how many hours are you out there? See, you've only got X amount of discretionary time. You, you get what I'm saying. 
we got to think carefully about what it is we're doing because we've been given a responsibility. The other thing that will embitter a child is just bitter words and outright physical cruelty. And some of you guys have been through that. So there is to be a love that is equitable. Secondly, the second moral landmark, uh, fathers should raise their children with tenderness. The word translated in Ephesians 6.4 as bring them up literally means to nourish or to provide for with tender care. Uh, children need tenderness. Girls need tenderness, and boys need tenderness. I remember one time playing Little League, I got hit in the face with a bat. And the first coach up to me, the first guy up to me said, I mean, I just got schnockered right in the chops with a baseball, the Louisville slugger. Mickey Mantle was imprinted on my forehead. I, t- I can't even tell you what happened. I just got hit in the face of the bat, and the first guy up to me, the first adult to me, you know what he said to me? He said, don't cry. That's what he said. Well, hey, let me hit you in the face with this bat, and let's see you not cry. Did not God make men with tear ducts? Did he not? Did not Jesus weep? You've wept. I've wept. I've wept an hour, two, three hours at times in my life, and I couldn't stop when I was going through that depression. By the way, when my dad got up to me on that baseball field, he came out of the stands. My dad didn't say, don't cry. He didn't say that. My dad just knelt down, put his arm around me, and he was checking me out. He says, man, Steve, let's look at you there, man. You all right? And I was just trying to shake it up. You know, he's just checking me out. He didn't say, don't cry. And I had tears. Remember, he said, man, that hurts like the dickens, doesn't it? I said, it does. I didn't know what the Dickens was, but it it had to hurt like the Dickens. (laughs) See, you know what? He was just right there with me. He didn't tell me. He didn't say something stupid. You get hit in the face with a bat, you're going to cry. You're going to have some tears. Um, Now, as men, we don't walk around sobbing all the time, obviously. Because there's to be some equilibrium, there's to be some calm, and there's to be some stability in the midst of difficult circumstances. And when we are fearful, we move ahead. There's courage. We all understand this. Sometimes God will take strong men, and he'll break us down, and he will deeply hurt us. He did that to me in my depression. I think one of the reasons he did that was to tenderize me. Uh, The Bible says, wrap wrap truth and kindness around your neck. I've never had trouble telling the truth. I've always had trouble, though, with kindness. It's very easy for me to lose my kindness. So the Lord allowed me, he, he deeply hurt me. He, I, was, I was really deeply wounded in that depression, and I, I was crying quite a bit. But see, what he was doing was he was tenderizing me. I think it made me a better husband. I think it made me a better dad. 
I think it made me better. I, I think it's interesting I wound up doing a lot of ministry to men because I often meet guys and they'll tell me they're in circumstances and they're crying all the time. I've had so many guys tell me that over the years and they're embarrassed. A lot of times I'm talking to them and they start sobbing. And they'll go, oh man, I'm, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I say, you don't need to be sorry. Oh, I'm just crying. I said, hey man, I could outcry you any day of the week. And I could. There's a place for tenderness. You're not always a tough guy. Sometimes you have to be. What's masculinity? It's bringing the appropriate trait to bear at the appropriate time. When you need to be tender, you're tender. When you need to confront, you confront. When you need to be aggressive, you're aggressive. But your heart is to be at peace with all men as much as it depends on you. You're not out of control, you're under control. This is masculinity. You should have no problem being tender with your kids or tender with your wife. Now, most of us have to work at it because it doesn't come that easy to us. Okay. Third thing. Um, I'm going to tell you a story before I do three. I had, I, when I was, years ago when I was pastoring, Rachel was probably in fourth grade, fifth grade. I had a guy, I, I was um, going to speak at a conference and there'd be a, there's going to be a couple thousand people there. And I had to do a talk that I had never done. I, I needed to prepare all week for this. Several talks. And I was going to speak Friday night and Saturday. And Monday, I got an emergency call from one of the guys, in the, one of the elders. And this guy he knew was in the church, and this guy was in a crisis. And can I meet with him? And it was, I mean, it was like major league crisis. I said, sure. So I met with the guy, spent a couple hours with him. Then I spent time with him that night. The next morning I met with him. I met with him again that night. Probably a couple hours on Wednesday. And I think it was Wednesday afternoon, I found out the whole time he'd been lying to me. And the whole, the whole crisis was his own making. And I got mad. Because I, was, I had to go, I had a job to do, and I was going to walk in unprepared. Because I'd been dealing, giving this guy time, who was a liar. So I busted my tail the rest of that day, got home about 9.30 at night. And I walk in, I'm exhausted, I'm just worn out, I'm mad, I'm watching some basketball game. Uh, John and Josh, I think, are in bed, maybe it was 10, and Rachel should have been in bed, and I'm just... Anyway, and Rachel's about eight, nine, ten. She comes downstairs and says, hi, Daddy. And I said, hi. And she walks by me in the front of the TV, goes in the kitchen, goes back. She's just being a little girl. And about five minutes later, she comes back and gets something. She goes, hi, Daddy. And I said, hi, Rach. And uh, she came down about three more times. About number five, I said, Rach, what are you doing up? She said, oh, Daddy. I said, you know what? I don't want to hear it. It's past your bedtime, you get up there and go to bed. But Daddy, I don't want to hear it. You get up there and go to bed. Now. And she broke into tears and she went up and did what I asked her to do. Then maybe five minutes later, Mary came downstairs and took a look at me and she knew what was going on. 
I called her and told her the guy was lying to me. And she said, you know, Steve, um, the reason that we're upstairs and she's not in bed is, you know that science project we've been working on? We, Mary and Rachel, not me, we. Mary and Rachel. I said, yeah. I've been working on that for a while, haven't you? She goes, yeah. Well, a mom picked up Rach in a carpool today, and then when they got out of the car, she drove off, and it's in the back of her car, and we can't locate her. This is before cell phones. I said, oh, God. She said, we're, doing, we re, we're upstairs redoing the entire science project. I said, oh, gosh. So I went upstairs, and I said, and Rachel was in bed, and I said, sweetheart, I am so sorry. I did not know about your science project and what had happened. And, and I said, I, I wouldn't even listen to you, would I? She, no, you wouldn't, Daddy. And I said, sweetheart, I am so sorry. Would, could you forgive me for that? I really didn't pay attention. I didn't even ask, did I? And she said, it's all right, Daddy. You're very tired. I'll never forget that. She said, you're very tired. I said, well, I am. Maybe I ought to go to bed <laughs> before I can emotionally maim anybody else in this family. So she forgave me, and we talked and prayed, and then I went to bed, and I couldn't sleep. After about an hour, I got up, I put my clothes on, I went down to the 24-hour Kroger. I got a florist thing, you know, you know that thing. I got a rose, a little vase, and they had a card with a picture of a man looking out from inside a doghouse. And I bought 50 cards. <laughs> Had my name embossed in gold. <coughs> I didn't buy 50, but I bought a card. And then I put it at the breakfast table, and I put a little note to her, because I figured I'd ruined her night. I was going to try to maybe get her day going a little better. See, this stuff is easy to teach. I find it hard to do. But when God shows you that you messed up, let me tell you what you do. You go get it right. Right then. Don't you horse around. Don't you rationalize. And then, well, that guy fall. If he had, hey, chump that guy. You're the problem. You be a man. Corey Tim Boom said the blood of Jesus never cleansed an excuse. Don't go upstairs and say, well, if I was wrong. I had a guy one time say to me, a big-time spiritual leader, well, I apologize if I was wrong. <laughs> I'll never forget that. My respect for him had already dropped, and it hit the basement when he said that. If you're wrong, say you're wrong. They'll love you for it. They'll love you for telling the truth and you're modeling what it means to be a Christian. I needed to be tender with her. Number three, fathers should, here's moral line mark number three. Father, are you guys still with me? Okay. And you say, what does this have to do with sexual identity? Well, stay with me. Okay. Moral landmark number three, fathers should raise their children with firmness with firmness. So, so far we've got 
fairness, we've got tenderness, and now we have firmness because Ephesians 6, 4 says children are to be raised in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. The word discipline may be described as training by means of rules and regulations, rewards, and, when necessary, punishments. It refers primarily to what is done to the child. By contrast, the word instruction is primarily training by means of the spoken word, whether that word be teaching, warning, or encouragement. It refers primarily to what is said to the child. They need both. They need discipline. So my little granddaughter, since she was um, a year old, she, she loves my glasses. She, I'll pick her up, and she immediately, and she's just a little baby girl. 11, 12 months, she'll grab my glasses. And I said, Madeline, no, you can't grab Papa's glasses. Well, she loves my glasses. She, lo she gets in her little hand, twisted. And, and, and so we've had to go through a little training. She wants my glasses. And so we've gone through this, and she'll start, I mean, as soon as I pick her up, those glasses, and, and I go, no, no. No. She'll go for it, and I'll grab her little hand. No. You can't have Papa's glasses. No. Papa's ear? She didn't care about my ear. But after all, she needs to know. I mean, no. And if she's going to resist me, I put her down. And then she'll say, up, Papa, up. No. No glasses. You want to try it again? I'll put her up and... And now, every, I just picked her up yesterday. And I picked her up, and she... <laughs> she's a year and a half. She wants those glasses, but she won't reach for them. Then I go, Papa's ear. And she went for my ear. See, it's just, it's just cute. But what happens if you don't do it? Oh, my gosh. Somebody's going to discipline at some point. Kenneth Taylor, who was the author of the Living Bible, I believe, he, I believe he had 10 children. I believe he and his wife, at least 10, said a father's task is many-sided, but the most important part of his work is to fit himself and his children into God's plan of family authority. Children are to be encouraged by their father's pat on the back and help to better things when necessary by the application of the hand or stick to the seat of learning. I like that helped to better things. Of course, there are other methods of discipline besides spanking, but whatever is called for must be used. To refuse to discipline a child is to refuse a clear demand of God, for a child who doesn't learn to obey both parents will find it much harder to learn to obey God. It's true. And can I say this? Who's in control at your house? It can't be a four-year-old. And it can't be a 14-year-old daughter, and it can't be a fixed 16-year-old boy. It cannot be. The world does not revolve around them. So what's the job of a dad? It's learning to balance tenderness with firmness. And we need the wisdom of God, and do we always get it right? No, we don't. But we keep working, and we keep practicing. Let me give you moral landmark number four.
fathers should raise their children in Christ. Uh, the phrase in Ephesians 6.4, in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, well, that tempers everything. Uh, let, let me say this to you. And, and, and now I'm going to come back to the whole sexual identity thing. We, in 1959, Martin Lloyd-Jones addressed his congregation in London, England. I've, I've told you this before. He got up and said to his people in 1959, he said, we are living in days of exceptional evil. In 1959, he said that. Because to him, how he was raised, where the nation was, he had never seen evil like that. He would not believe where we are today. We are raising, the, the, there is such spiritual darkness in this nation. We take what is good and we call that bad. We take what is bad and we call that good. I like the show Blue Bloods. You got a family. They have dinner on Sundays. They're all police officers, most of them. One of the daughters is a DA. Um, they pray together. But I saw an episode here recently. I watch TV about 20 hours a day. I, um, I saw an episode, Mary saw it, and she wanted to play it for me, so we watched it last night. And the, the daughter who is in the district attorney's office has a daughter that's now, I don't know, what is she, a senior in high school or something. And she comes home late with takeout food, and her daughter, like a minute later, comes down the hall and kind of adjusting her sweater and says, oh, mom, you're home late. And she kind of looked just disheveled. And her mom's kind of looking at her and said, yeah, I had to stay late. How are you? She said, oh, I'm fine. What are you doing? Oh, I'm doing my homework. She's okay. And she said, well, we'll eat here. And about 20 seconds later, here comes this guy walking down the hall. Oh, mom, this is such and such. Really interesting. Oh, and he'd like to stay for dinner. You talk about brazen. And the mom didn't say a word. And then they had a conversation later in the show, several days had gone by, and they're talking about sex. And once again, the daughter's very brazen. No, mom, you might as well ask. No, I haven't had sex with him. And the implication was not yet. Now, this is what, I mean, this is probably as good as it gets on TV shows. Um, the, as, as Martin Lloyd-Jones said, it used to be that you could protect your family and protect your home, and you could live the truth, and you could teach the truth in your home pretty much insulated from outside influences, but no more. Uh, 
Your kids are in darkness. You, your kids are living in a dark world. And I want to say this to you. They need fathers and they need grandfathers who are following Christ. Because with all these wrong messages, and, and, and you know what? Kids are under incredible pressure. They're under incredible peer pressure. There, there is... It is beyond belief what kids are dealing with. The, the enemy comes to rob, steal, and destroy, and murder, steal their souls, steal their lives. Guys, I'm telling you, you know what, you know what these kids need? They need a father who is in Christ. They need a father who is following Christ. You said, Steve, I've made so many mistakes. Listen, I'm going to say this again. You can't keep looking back. You've got to get under the blood of Christ. You can't spend all your time in regret. That is be, that's behind you. There's not a thing you can do, but you can do all kinds of things about today. You follow me as I follow Christ. I have not always lived according to this word, but I'm living according to it today. I'm not asking you to do anything I don't do. I'm following Christ with my whole heart. And you show it to him. And you show it by how you live this out in your life. And what that'll do, guys, when a dad is in Christ, and I'm going to tell you, they can be in darkness and dads can pray them out of it. And you pray for them. And you demonstrate the truth. And you love them. And you just simply be a man of God and you walk with Christ. And you know what you are? In a dark world, you're a beacon of light. I heard William Debus say, I read this from William Debus say, say one time. And, and, and see, the whole thing, the pressure, it's, just, it's all sexual. Why would they not get in sexual sin? The, the tsunami is sexual sin. The beacon is a father who was following Christ and who was a godly man, and who was a righteous man, and is a man they respect, and they respect your life, and they respect how you've lived your life, because you're in Christ. That's their hope. William Debussy used this illustration. He said, you know, a father with, with teenage kids is sort of like... Uh, the guy driving the boat with the championship water skier behind him. You ever seen on ESPN late at night, the water skiing guys? They're on about 3.30. <laughs> and they're at Coral Gables, Florida, somewhere. And those guys, you've seen them, and they're going off these ramps, and they're doing these slaloms, and they're doing these, and they're just unbelievable. Backflips off the ramp, eating cheeseburgers. They're just amazing stuff. Meanwhile, the guy in the boat, what is he doing? He's just driving straight. Is he going off ramps? No, he's... And he gets to the end, he turns around. He just goes straight. Debussy said, that's a father with teenage kids. They're going off the ramps. They're crazy. They don't know what they're doing. Their friends say, hey, let's go do this. Commit Harry Carey. Oh, okay, fine, let's do it. 
And you know what a dad does? A dad who's following Christ, you just go straight, and they don't think you're cool, and they don't think you get in, but you know what? You're going to pull them through it as you follow Christ. We're not perfect. But if there's going to be any stability, and I'm going to tell you something, there are guys in here with prodigals who have come back. So don't you lose heart. In an age that's lost its mind, a godly man who is following Christ and who loves his wife, who loves his Lord, who loves his kids, is pursuing sexual purity, will pull them through it. So we pray and thank you, Father, that you will encourage every man. Our hearts have been broken. Many dads in here, many dads, their hearts have been broken because their kids have gotten into things that just, well, it rips our hearts out. But we are so thankful that Jesus is the great Redeemer and the great Savior. And we've all sinned as men and come short of the glory of God. The only hope in the whole world in darkness, this sexually drunk, licentious society is Jesus Christ. Save us and save our kids. You can heal broken hearts. You, you can, and Lord, if, if there is a wound in the, in, if there is a wound in the heart of, of our kids, help us to see it. And then help us to go with your help and address it. And may you suture that wound. And may you restore the hearts of the fathers to the children and the children to the fathers. That pleases your heart. We ask for this mercy in Jesus' name. Amen.